welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Um, I would argue that Easter's the hardest sermon to write every year. Easter and Christmas Eve, because you all know what I'm going to say. Um, so I'm going to try and say something that you didn't see coming, okay? Are you ready for this one? Okay, stand if you will. We'll read from Mark chapter 16. We've been in a Lenten series, so Lent is officially over. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Um, Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 1, he writes this. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, mother, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they may go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Do not be alarmed, he said, for you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Pray with me. God, this morning as we gather in this place uh, as your church, uh, those who, many of whom are committed to this way of life and this Jesus person, many who may not be. I pray that your spirit would be present in a way that we can hear and sense and feel you, uh, that you might speak and be near to uh, our lives, not some idea, not some far-off thing, but right here, right now, uh, the very lives that we lead. I pray in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, friends, my name is Micah, and I am a pastor. This is official. I stand in a very long and deep tradition of men and women who have gone before me on mornings just like this, who have stood in front of people much like yourselves, trying to make sense of and trying to shed light on exactly what happened on Easter morning. Now, many of us who have been to church and have done this sort of thing before, uh, I think we sort of take for granted the bizarre nature of the story in which we're talking about this morning, right? We're like, oh yeah, Jesus rose from the grave. The grave grows from the dead. No big deal. NBD, right? No big deal. And yet, the claim is that a guy actually rose from the dead. Like, he was dead and then he's not. He came up out of the ground, the heart wasn't beating, and now it is beating, which is a little crazy. So this morning, what I want to try to do is make what's familiar for many of us unfamiliar again. Uh, There's a philosopher who tells a story about a guy who lived by the ocean, And at first, he couldn't hear anything but the waves crashing in on the shore, loud. If you've ever been near the ocean or slept near the ocean, uh, I I found it hard to sleep the first time I did. And after time, eventually, the guy sort of stopped hearing the waves, and they become familiar. They became familiar. So what I hope to do this morning, in some ways, is to try to help us hear the waves again as people who live by the ocean, or, well, as far away from the ocean as you could possibly get, in Minnesota, but the ocean of this story, the familiarity of this story about Jesus. So I hope that my words are, in some sense, a little bit prophetic, that they, they shake the boat a little bit. Uh, some people think that when the prophets showed up, that crisis always follows. And I don't, want, I don't think that the prophets bring crisis. I think often the prophets just turn on the lights, 
Micah, my name, he was a prophet. So I'm just trying to do what I, you know, do my name today. So the prophets turn on the lights. The guy named Walter Brueggemann says this about prophets. He says, prophetic preaching doesn't put people in crisis, but rather it names and makes palpable the crisis already uh, pulsing among us. So I begin with the assumption this morning that there may be a crisis among us, and I hope to just turn on the lights in a way that maybe you haven't thought of this story before. Now some stand here on Easter and they try to convince you of something. They try to, you know, cajole something up or... I don't know if you've ever been to an Easter service that felt a little bit like a Disney movie. You know what I mean? Where it's like, yeah, rah, 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 go get him, yeah, you know, charge out the doors. And I, I didn't, I never liked Disney that much anyways. <laughs> so I, I don't really want to do that, but I do want to talk seriously about what exactly were this, this story and this resurrection tale. And my belief is that this matters a great deal. Like, there isn't anything else that matters more. Paul says, if you don't have the resurrection, then this whole thing is a house of cards without Kevin Spacey. (laughs) And it all tumbles, it all falls, and so really you should probably just go home and eat the ham that's in your oven because that's really all Easter is worth if you don't have the resurrection. So I want to focus on that for just a moment, all right? And um, I uh, I hope that that happens this morning. So do you guys remember the movie The Matrix? Keanu Reeves, right? Who, who, who does Easter without Keanu? A little bit of Keanu Reeves. So this movie, The Matrix, uh, it came out in like the late 90s, early 2000s. It was actually a really, really fascinating movie. Some people didn't get it because it was a little sci-fi, a little weirdish. But if you unpeel the layers a little bit, it's brilliant. Um, so The Matrix, uh, in this movie called The Matrix, there's this idea Uh, The Matrix is a world in which uh, that only exists in our imaginations. It's like a tape that plays, it's like a program that plays in our minds where we live and we do business and we have families and we eat and we marry and we have all the things that we have, but it's actually not real. It's only happening in our minds. What's real in the movie, what's actually true in the movie is that the world has been taken over by uh, these, uh, these machines who have captured humans and enslaved them. Now, the machines know that there's an energy source in us, that somehow we just keep ticking, and so they capture the humans and enslave them and, like, suck the energy out of them to build their empire. This is a great story, right? I mean, come on. Easter without that story. What are we talking about here? But then there's this group of revolutionaries who are, like, outside of the matrix, and they're trying to sort of gather this group of people together to overthrow the machines. It's classic good versus evil. And this is where Keanu, our good buddy Keanu, enters the story. He's called Neo, and they think he's the one. They think he's the one that's going to like help light the fire to sort of win the revolution and take down the machines in the empire. Okay, everybody's still tracking? Not so hard to understand, right? Now, here's the point. Here's why I tell you all this. There's this moment where Morpheus, played by Lawrence Fishburne, is with Neo, played by Keanu, and they're in this room, and it's just like classic movie line. And Morpheus says to Neo, he says this, essentially, how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? Like, you take the blue pill, and it takes you back to your life that you think you live. Nothing changes. The status quo remains. You eat, you drink, you be merry. Nothing changes. Or you take the red pill, and your eyes are open, and you see the world for what it actually is. And you can never go back. Now, why on earth would I tell the story? Why would I bring the Matrix into an Easter sermon? My wife was thinking that when she was here first hour. She's like, I got that look from her. You know, if you, well, maybe you don't, but there's this look that you get from your wife when she's like, what on earth are you talking about? And why are you talking about the Matrix? Like, I'm lost here. Why do I talk about this? I think that the, the reason this movie was such a big deal for so many people is that it's actually telling the same story that the Bible is telling. 
that there are two realities, there are two worlds, there are two representations of what's real and what leads to life, what will ultimately fulfill and what will ultimately bring joy, but in the end, only one of them can produce that. The biblical narrative, the the story of the gospel, tells a similar story, that there are two things happening here, there are two ways of doing this deal, and I want to suggest to you this morning that the, the choice that you make Red pill or blue pill, Neo, the choice that you make on this one matters more than any other choice. It's a big deal. That's why people feel so much pressure writing Easter sermons. Gosh. So what are, the, what are the choices? What are the options? All right? Here we go. The first option, this first story, I would call it the dominant narrative. I would also say it's the assumed narrative. It's the status quo that you and I woke up to this morning in 2016. And it goes something like this. Self-invention which moves to self-sufficiency, all by way of competitive productivity. Let me say that again. Self-invention, we invent ourselves, we make ourselves, and when we do that, we essentially, we're sufficient on our own. We stand on our own two feet. And that is all done by, it's, it's exercised by, it's, 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 it's actuated by productive or competitive productivity. Let me break this down a little bit. This idea of self-invention We make ourselves, we invent ourselves, we create meaning and significance. We are the ones that determine who we are. If you've ever been around kids before, you've you've maybe heard this question where you you get a kid and you're like, hey little guy, what do you want to be when you grow up? Have you ever heard that question before? Or you ever asked somebody that one? I think this is a bad question to ask kids, quite frankly, if we're going to do a parenting seminar. I wouldn't recommend it because I don't think it's actually true. Because the assumption is, what do you want to be when you grow up? You can be anything you want. You can invent yourself. You can essentially determine what you want to do and who you're going to be. I think a much more interesting or healthy way would be to, as a parent, to help guide and direct and see your kids for who they are and what they are and help draw that out. Because there is an essence there that is them. Like me, I'm never going to be a basketball player. I'm a terrible ball handler. I cannot dribble. No matter how hard I practice, I will never be that. So we invent ourselves as we entertain this idea of self-invention. We move towards a greater sense of self-sufficiency. Like, we can do this on our own. I can stand on my own two feet. Everybody knows that God doesn't help people that don't help themselves, right? Okay. Everything you've secured, you've done it on your own. It's your work. It's your hands. You've done it. You will not be a burden to anybody because, you know, if, you have a, if you're a burden to somebody, then you have needs, and needs are weak. You don't want to be appear weak. We have the capacity as humans to build things, to make things. We have all the answers. This is the lie of the enlightenment, right? That we can actually figure this all out. We can fix it. We can solve all the problems. We can build the skyscrapers that defy gravity. We can send people to Mars. We can solve all the diseases and cure them all. If you've ever heard a child, one of the, one of the lovely things that they say, if you, you know, come up to them and you want to help them with something, and they say to you, I can do it myself right? It's actually, the kids know it. They, they pick this up. This is the, this is the default narrative, self-invention, self-sufficient. I stand on my own too. This is, by the way, by the dancing way, the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 7, right? The tower to the sky. So from self-invention to self-sufficiency, we need others less and less and less, and we do so, we do all of this by competitive productivity. By that, I mean We produce things, we create things, we make things, and then we bring them to market and we sell them. And if we can do this better and faster and more productively than anybody else, then we win. We get more more meaning, more value, more worth, more money. 
This is what drives the marketplace. This is what drives your jobs. This is what drives the world that we live in, friends. And here's the kicker. In this story, in this, in this narrative, in this way of viewing the world, what drives it is a pervasive anxiety that there's not enough to go around. Scarcity. So I have to get mine while I can. And I have to beat you to it. My brothers and I had this phrase that we used to say to each other. Do unto others quick before they do it to you. <laughs> this is where it comes from. Now, Brueggemann, this guy I quoted earlier, listen to what he says. You've got to stick with me on this one. He says, thus, it is an acting out in quotidian ways. Last time you used the word quotidian in a sentence. I was told first hour that it means daily, right? So, <laughs> thus, an acting out in daily ways of the modern sense of the autonomous self that eventuates in a rat race that readily culminates in violence if and when this self is impinged upon in convenient ways. Now, if that wasn't big enough, wait for it. Here it comes. I'm about to get real. In the contemporary United States, it is a matrix that in parallel fashion is rooted in a conviction concerning U.S. exceptionalism that gives warrant to the usurpatious pursuit of commodities in the name of freedom at the expense of the neighbor. What has just been said? <laughs> I mean, it took me a while after I read that. I'm like, oh, I think I get what he's saying. This narrative is a rat race that leads us to crazy places of defending our position, because what we have, we earned, even to, even to the degree that we will harm neighbor to, to keep it, is essentially what he's saying. Now, this narrative is actually, you can see it at play in the garden. You can see it at play in Cain and Abel in the field. It's at play with humanity at the time of Noah. It's what drives the story of the Tower of Babel. It's what drives Jacob to steal his brother's birthright. It's what drives his sons to sell their brother into slavery. It's what drives the Egyptians to enslave the Israelites. It's what drives the Israelites to ask for a king when they didn't need one, which then leads them into slavery again. It's everywhere, friends. It's like a matrix, it's the default story, and it's being offered to you here right now. You woke up this morning, and that's what's on the table. You determine meaning, value, and significance. You make yourself. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You're Americans. You make yourself. You are in control. You don't need anything but hard work in your dreams. And if you work hard enough, then you can have it all. If you do it faster and better and longer and stronger and more convincingly than your competition, then you will win, win, win. Has anybody been hearing this lately? You've been watching the debates? Come on now. <laughs> Friends, and if you get in the way of this, if you get in the way of this thing, all kinds of crazy things will happen. We will do nearly anything to justify securing and protecting this narrative. As a people, or as an individual, as a people, as a country. Now, Self-invention, self-sufficiency by competitive productivity. This is the dominant narrative. What's the alternative then? This is why resurrection and this is why Easter matters such a great deal. Because this is the counter. This is the other story. This is the other offering. And I would call it the resurrection narrative. And if you have eyes to see it, you can see it at play in the same stories that I said earlier. You can see it in the garden with Adam and Eve. You can see it with the first brothers, Cain and Abel. You can see it with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the patriarchs. You can see it with Joseph when his father sends him into a world with, 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 uh, into a situation of harm to seek the shalom of his brothers. This is the question of the resurrection narrative. Will you seek shalom, peace, of your brother and sister 
at cost to yourself? That's the question the resurrection narrative offers. And this is what it looks like. Here's, if it's self-invention to self-sufficiency by competitive productivity, the other alternative is sacrificial love, which leads to death, which brings resurrection and flourishing. And this one, friends, it's crazy town. People say that it's foolishness. People say that you can't, this doesn't work. The world doesn't work that way. By giving up yourself and your needs for the sake of somebody else, you'll end up dying. <laughs> Maybe, yes. But I would suggest that this story tells a different ending. And it's the one that actually leads to life. It's the one that actually brings about wholeness and flourishing and resurrections of sort where things that were once dead come alive again. Sacrificial love is where it begins, and it goes against everything that we know. It goes against the very grains of us and that we're taught, we're taught from the earliest of ages. It takes a kid maybe one year to say this, this insipid word, mine. There's another character in a great story who says mine. If you've seen The Lord of the Rings. Sacrificial love asks the ego, me, to take a back seat and allow the needs of somebody else to be primary. And we all know that when we are asked to move into this place, it feels like death, doesn't it? Just the other day, I'm standing in my kitchen and my kids are outside. It's a nice evening. I had been out in my garage working, right? I have this gigantic like gas hog of a heater in this garage I, I have. So I was out there doing some woodworking and I'd keep the doors closed because I wanted to keep the heat in. So I come inside for dinner and I was going to go back out there, all right? So I look out the window and someone who shall remain nameless has left the, the door wide open from the garage. So as the good father that I am, I stand outside, I say, sweethearts, loves of mine, children, would somebody please close the door so that we don't heat the neighborhood? I do love West St. Paul, but not that much. So they close the door. I'm not kidding you guys, this all takes place in less than five minutes, okay? So the door gets closed, I'm chit-chatting with my lovely bride, da-da-da-da-da, we're doing the thing. I turn around, no kidding, the door is wide open again. I'm like, am I here? Is this actually happening to me? So I open the door, I'm like, girls, would somebody please close the door? I really don't want to heat the neighborhood. I've said this once, can we do this? The door gets closed. I turn around, you guessed it, I come back, not one door, but both doors. The garage door is wide open. The heat is pouring into the neighborhood. And I'm like, for the love of all things holy, please close the garage doors. <laughs> and then it dawns on me that this need that I have, this desire, this want, this thing that I just have to have done, maybe it's not all that important. And in a small, insignificant way, something in me has to die in order for me to move in that direction. Now, this is a silly story that I tell, and we're all like, oh, that's a good one, Micah, your garage, the heater. <laughs> <laughs> well, what happens when somebody does harm to you or your friends or the ones that you love? What happens when somebody hurts you and does something that is nearly unforgivable? Where if you, if, if you were honest, if you saw them, if you ran into, the, into them in a parking lot, you might actually hit them. Because you're that mad and you're that confused as to how in God's name this happened. 
And then there's this small little voice that invites you towards forgiveness. But you resist it, because if you forgive, then they're free. Then they're off the hook, right? And they do not deserve to be off the hook. What they did was horrible. Now, am, I, am I preaching? Are, are we here now? This trajectory, this narrative, always begins with sacrificial love, where you give up something that you think you want, maybe you do want, maybe it's totally legitimate, and it moves you towards small sometimes and large other times deaths, where something has to die in you so that something else can be born. And friends, that feels like death. This is the paradox of the story of Jesus. This is the absolutely This is the craziness of the gospel. That when Jesus comes out of the tomb on Easter morning, his life, death, and resurrection confirms the fact that this story, this narrative, not this one, but this one, is actually true and it's the way the world works. That life comes, flourishing happens when we sacrificially love other, even unto death. The resurrection of Jesus says, this is true. Not this way, but this way. Now the question is, do you believe it? That's the great question. We come here on Easter and that's it. That's the, that's the one question to answer I would suggest. There are two stories being told. Which one actually leads to life and which one will you orient your life around? Sometimes on Easter it's like, again, this rah-rah kind of thing and everybody, but we all know that many of you walk in the door and it's not rah-rah. Some of you had just, have just had miscarriages, and some of you have just had relationships fall apart in your lives, and so that's kind of like not helpful. But I would just offer you this morning the, 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 the sincerest possibility that this way of life, that the resurrection of Jesus confirms, actually leads you to life. Now let's start where we, let's end where we began this morning, Mark chapter 16. These women come to the tomb, and it says, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. What a way to end a story. If you look in your Bibles, it may say something like, The earliest manuscripts and some ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 to 20. Mark 16, in the original manuscript, ends with verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, they left afraid. Question I want to leave you with this morning is, what's your response? For some, it's total rejection. Maybe you've come here and you were dragged here and you'll leave and you'll say, you know what? Thank you, but no thank you. Fair enough. I respect that. Think it, think it, think it through, but I respect it. Some of you, it's ambivalence. I don't, I'm not even sure. Like, does it matter? And I would just say, yes, it matters. About two minutes, sweetheart. She said, when's he going to be done? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Can't make it up. Almost there, honey. Almost there. (laughs) Some of you came here this morning and you're not sure. You're uncertain. Is it actually true or not? And we started this church to create a place where we could wrestle with that. Is it true? And if it is, I think it matters so very much. Nothing matters more. And for some of you, maybe for the first time, you sense this invitation to take a step of faith towards 
believing and trusting that this story, sacrificial love, which leads to death, which ultimately leads to life, resurrections of all sorts, is true. And I would just say, please, for the love of the one who died on a cross, would you consider that? To orient your life around it, to say yes to it and follow. I'm going to ask the worship team to come, and we're going to close with a couple of songs together. Before we do that, I'm going to offer a time of silence. And while we're there in that moment, I want to invite you to consider what is your response. For some of you, it may be for the first time. Is this true? Ah, Maybe it is. Would you take a step of faith towards it? And for many, maybe you've come here and you've said yes to Jesus, but it just doesn't feel a lot like Easter today, for whatever the reason. And I want to remind you that while sacrificial love, which leads to death, sometimes actually feels like death, I believe with everything in me that those deaths lead to resurrection when we follow this Jesus. Pray with me if you would. God, as we enter this time of silence and we consider the gravity of this moment in time, this person who apparently lived and died and resurrected from the dead, and if so, confirms the story that's told in the scriptures and answers a whole lot of questions about why we're here and what the meaning of it all is, would you speak, God, in these next moments to our hearts and whatever we need to hear this Easter, whether we've said yes to you or we're not sure or something in between. Speak now, I pray. Holy Spirit, come. God, here we are and here you are. We're gathered in this place this morning. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the life that you lived, the sacrifice that you gave for us on our behalf to heal and redeem and end a cycle of violence that doesn't actually produce life in the end. Would you teach us how to be those kinds of people in the world? I pray. Amen. My friends, my brothers and sisters, my hope and my prayer for you this morning is that you leave maybe knowing more or committed more, invited one step closer to the reality and the belief that Jesus in fact was resurrected from the grave and that this is the best way to live life to love sacrificially even unto death and that in our lives in your homes, in your workplaces, in your families that there would be these little resurrections these little echoes of what happened so long ago so before I offer this blessing to you. Uh, I just want to remind you that uh, we have a prayer team that's available. Uh, They would be honored and glad to pray with you about anything, to give a blessing over you and your family. Uh, Maybe if you feel like for the first time this is something that you want to step towards, um, just having somebody bear witness to that is often an encouraging thing. So please uh, find them. They're right over here to my left, my right and your left. Aaron was told in the Old Testament to give this blessing over the Israelites. And for thousands of years, people in this place have said this over the people of God. So receive this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. 
the Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace. Love you guys. Happy Easter. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.